Good morning, everyone, to this new episode of The Next Page, our podcast designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. Today, we have a bookcast episode together with Dr. Rebecca Adami on Women and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This is actually the title of one of her books published by Routledge in 2019. And we bring this to the fore for two good reasons. First of all, the gender historical analysis and perspective on the role of women in the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And secondly, because this year, 2023, is the 75th anniversary of that declaration. And so we thought we would like to shine a light from a gender perspective on the declaration. And actually, the book goes a long way into explaining how you know, these women that Rebecca will describe to us had a role in pushing for a more inclusive language than the right of man, which is what the initial negotiations were were going for. So the book provides this very good uh, gender historical narrative of human rights from the San Francisco conference, actually, in '45 until the final negotiations in December 48 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So big welcome to you, Rebecca. Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore your book today, so thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here. That's great. It's great to have you. We're recording this over video call, so uh, we hope that this is going to be fine for, for the audience. So, Rebecca, please tell our audience a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in gender and the history of international relations, and in particular the, East, the history of the Universal Dec- Declaration of what pushed you to study this and finally publish this very interesting book, Women and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Thank you. So, uh, so I'm, I'm really interested in uh, in human rights and hu- human rights studies, both philosophical discussions, critical discussions about the concept of human rights. I was asking um, a lot of questions in relation to literature that I read. You know, a lot of critiques against the universality of human rights. Um, a lot of thinkers wanting to redefine human rights, stating that there was no uh, universal acceptance of these human rights that had been listed in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. A lot of philosophers drawing back the history of rights to a very Western and European history. I was uh, inspired by feminist and post-colonial critiques uh, against human rights, but also wondering whether there was like an empirical basis for such critiques. I was really, I was wondering when I started this work, and this dates back to um, more than 10, 10 years ago when I was writing my dissertation on human rights learning, I myself, when I read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it's written in a kind of abstract and not so emotional language. It's it's difficult to maybe relate to the articles in the declaration. And I was wondering, you know, if you're working as a teacher in a classroom or discussing human rights in other like non-formal educational settings how would you feel addressed by human rights would you feel that by you know reading the declaration that these are only built on an idea of a western 
individual or do they really you know do these notions really relate to to people in in different contexts because there are no references to religion or different cultural backgrounds or sentiments in the declaration of course so so i wanted to look into the actual you know archival materials and meeting protocols from the debates when the declaration but also the un charter was being discussed and and what i found was a very fascinating historical narrative that countered the critique that has been leveled against human rights as being only western and male concept um and also countered the idea that there were only white <laughs> colonial male um delegates and subjects uh, at these uh, debates and deliberations about human rights what i found was a counter narrative and and i've been intrigued and very inspired by the women delegates from different countries that i felt that i met through these meeting protocols and initially i was a little bit frustrated because their names were not really spelled out they were only only referred to as mrs or miss so and so and then their husbands last names so women had been really written been written out even uh, out from official un documents and meeting protocols by just referring to mrs so and so last name of their husbands so i had to do a lot of digging and researching into the the backgrounds of these very fascinating women and found, finding that these were women who had been part of resistance movements in their countries against colonial uh, oppression and they had paid a high price for really fighting for human rights in reality and they were met by of course a majority of male delegates at these debates at the UN who maybe initially felt like oh human rights this is a great idea and this is something that even colonial powers had championed uh, but in the abstract when they realized that human rights would be used against their power interest against oppression against male privilege then a lot of delegates backed on this notion and this is something that you will see if you look into material also after the declaration was being adopted because then people had a faith in these words and used them in order to you know petition to the united nation the trusteeship council saying that well look this uh, colonial administration is oppressing people uh, this is a violation of human rights you need to respect the universality of human rights etc etc so this was a really revolutionary idea that people would have rights regardless of of their legal and social status in society so i think it's it's so fascinating and so inspiring to read the debates the struggles and the conflicts behind these seemingly abstract notions in the declaration because behind every word there is a certain meaning and behind this meaning there meaning there is life it's a struggle between wanting the wording to be as as inclusive as possible or excluding people due to religion or or gender or race and and i will go into some of these debates 
but for me, I gained a renewed hope and a really strong belief in both in the United Nations as a platform for negotiations and diplomatic discussions, and in human rights as a, a very forceful idea and uh, ideal that can be used and claimed by people. And this is something that I think repressive regimes and governments will notice all over the world when people use human rights and claim them in, in their context. It will challenge power structures and, and political agendas. And I, I think this is, it's just very fascinating to draw, you know, parallels from the history to the present and to current debates because they are also repeating and ongoing. Absolutely, absolutely. This is what this episode is for. Before we delve into and we dive into actually the overview of your book, you mentioned something that is actually very important. You said this revolutionary idea that individuals would have rights and what happens when this idea is put on the table at the international level in an international context like the UN at the time. Your, your book opens with a description of the context we were in when the first idea of a universal declaration emerged. So we're, we're after, just after the, 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 the adoption of the Charter of the United Nations. So help us a little bit understand what was the situation in the world at that time? Of course, there was this trauma of the Second World War having been so immense, so heavy on the entire humankind and the equilibrium, the balance uh, among states. But there was more at play uh, at that, in, the, in the conscience of people and states at that time. Can you help us understand that context? So we're, we're in 1946, so uh, right after the adoption of the UN Charter. And the UN Charter is a, uh, you know, sets the mandate for the United Nations as an organization and for its member states, mentioning the need for member states to respect human rights. And these human rights were then being listed in the Declaration of Human Rights. But it was not really evident at this time, whether human rights or whether the idea of, of rights would be referring to member states' rights, you know, the, the rights of member states to sovereignty, etc., or whether we were actually talking about individuals' human rights. And, and, um, and this was a debate uh, that would um, then be um, focused on on people's individual human rights but so we're at the end of the second world war there there had been two world wars and uh, it's important to to understand that at these meetings images were still being showcast the atrocities of the second world war of the holocaust were becoming um faced by international media showing images from the from the holocaust and what had happened during uh, the nazi regime and people were really shocked to see how governments could turn against their own populations how uh, how the german people could have lived you know just close by concentration camp without 
this knowledge being spread and images being spread all over Europe. So, so people were really were shocked. There was a need to regain a faith in the dignity of of human beings and. In, in when we think about women and women's roles, so women were in minority uh, at these deliberations. There were only maybe one or two uh, women representatives in each um, delegation. Very few at the San Francisco conference where the UN Charter was being adopted, but also very few during the two years when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was being um, debated. So, but so, how come women actually got a voice in these negotiations? I think this was actually, in one way, a window of opportunity because women had taken a different role during the Second World War. Uh, women had become breadwinners of families in many countries. They've been factory workers, maybe not organized as well in labor unions. So, this idea of equal pay for for work was not really a reality, but something that they would voice at the United Nations, uh, you know, gender equality in, in relation to equal pay. Uh, women in many countries uh, had voted for the first time in national elections, also in European countries, because the two world wars had delayed suffrage. So there was also this sense of solidarity in the suffrage movement, because this was the first time when then the right to vote, regardless of whether you're a man or a woman, whether you had property or not. So there was like, there was a lot of, a lot of things that would limit universal suffrage related to class, to race, to gender, to age, etc. And, and this was a, a movement and an idea that, you know, you need a universal suffrage and, People in many parts of the world had not experienced that, but there was also then a sense of solidarity um, above national boundary, uh, borders. And I think this is really important to take into account. Women had taken part in independence movements, as in India and, and what would be the establishment of Pakistan. Women had served in prison for their boycotting of colonial administration and economic oppression through very unequal, of course, uh, trade agreements, etc. And, and also then women in African countries had, you know, taken, started to take active part in political demands against colonial administrations when, you know, their husbands were being imprisoned or forced to unpaid labor. So uh, even though there were very few women then taking active role in international politics through the UN, they had experience of working, being breadwinners, having the right to vote uh, for the first time. There was also an uh, increased sense of uh, responsibility as a citizen and not just as someone in the private sphere. So women's role in, in the public had shifted during uh, both these world wars. So that was the kind of the another side of uh, from a feminist perspective of you know of women being able to push the limits for what they could talk about and seeing that issues that concerned their lives, their families, 
were political issues that they had experience of. They now had experience of of voting and of um, of working and being, you know, having economic responsibilities in their in their families. And um, and there was also faith in the UN to place pressure on colonial powers for human rights and for people living under, you know, in non-self-governing territories. And self, the right to self-determination was mentioned already in, in the Atlantic Charter. So people who had fought against the Axis, they also had a faith in, in the United Nations to, to push for self-determination. There was a faith in ECOSOC, you know, UN Economic and Social Council, that this body would have an even greater role than the Security Council. And I think this is a fascinating part of of where the world was then, consciously, because there was this idea of the Economic and Social Council could work through deliberations and with a more fair economic development and social cooperation between member states that could prevent future wars and that would uh, even decrease the the importance of the Security Council. I mean, this is an ideal that we've seen has not really uh, become a reality, but there was also like this renewed hope after these two world wars that peace finally would mean democracy in more countries in reality and and also realization and a respect for for what was not being coined now being coined as as international and universal human rights so i I also think that the collaboration and that was needed you know to to rebuild infrastructure in societies after world. Uh, created an opportunity for more, a little bit more solidarity than maybe we would have if we had worked today with with such documents. You mentioned the um, the, the situation we were in, and you mentioned also the space that women had for themselves in what we call international politics at that time. So it's very clear that there is this trend of women having shifted their position also during, especially during the the Second World War. When we look at how the Universal Declaration was negotiated, it is undeniable, and you make that point in your book, that there is also an influence of the previous negotiation of the Charter. And we know that some key women had key roles in making the Charter what it is today, and, and it was adopted in '45. So in what way exactly that experience played and connected, if it, it was the case, the two negotiating processes? Meaning, was the space that women had in the negotiation of the Human Rights Declaration a consequence of the good work some of them, especially from the global south, one should add, did in San Francisco? Yes. This is a really good question because I think that the experiences that a few women had from the San Francisco conference really laid the groundwork for how they would then negotiate during the Declaration of Human Rights. So at the San Francisco conference, you had only four women signing the charter. You had Berta Lutz from uh, Brazil. You had Minerva Bernardino from the Dominican Republic. You had Virginia Gildersleeve from the U.S. and you we Fang from uh, China. In 
official documents, it's been said that, you know, the women at the San Francisco conference championed women's rights. That was not really the case. It was a little bit more complex than that. The women delegates from Brazil and the Dominican Republic, together with other Latin American women who were um, advisors or secretaries in, in different delegations, they created a strong alliance and solidarity among each other because they found out and experienced rather quickly that they would not gain the support that they thought that they would have from Western women delegates at the San Francisco conference. They were really disappointed by this. Virginia Gildersleeve, for example, in the U.S. delegation, she felt that it was unnecessary to talk about women's human rights or gender equality because women were naturally included in the idea of all men or the rights of man. So, and this is, I think this is also a very fascinating historical fact that in 1946, it was actually the Latin American feminists from the global south who were really arguing for the need to explicitly mention gender equality in the UN Charter, to explicitly mention the need for a commission on the statutes of women, because they felt and they had very strong um, support for feeling that a commission with only men, a human rights commission, would not adequately deal or include issues related to women's rights. And, and they felt that you needed a commission with only women at the United Nations and at the founding of the United Nations because women were in such a, a marginalized position because there were so few of them. Men were really in majority. If you look at images and photos from the San Francisco conference and the debates, especially about the Security Council, you will see rows and rows. These are really beautiful uh, black and white photos of men in costumes smoking cigars. And there's a lot of cigar smoke in these rooms. It was a really male-dominated climate and atmosphere. But in these rooms, you had very strong feminists like Berta Lutz from Brazil, who was a politician and with a very strong political voice stating that the few women at the San Francisco conference who were there needed to represent and ensure that half of the world's population, women, were being included in the notion of, of human rights. And they succeeded at the San Francisco conference to include Article 8 of the Charter, saying that women should also have the right to hold positions in, in UN in bodies and the Secretariat. They managed to include sex in the non-discrimination list. They also ensured gender equality to be mentioned in the preamble and also to at least raise the question that you needed a commission on the status of women under uh, ECOSOC. And the Commission on the Statutes of Women was initially a subcommission under the Commission on Human Rights, but they gained an independent st status and 
they were able to have representatives in all meetings where the Universal Declaration was being debated. So this was this was really important. I think that this was something also that created a kind of sisterhood, especially between women from the global south, from India, from from Latin American countries who knew that if you would not mention women explicitly in the wording, that would not, human rights would not be seen as including women in their countries. They also drew on the experience that they had a great support from international women's organizations. At the end of World War II, women had organized an international organizations from you know the legal league of nations and and under the wars in in different kinds of solidarity actions uh, for peace to help children also who had children were really you know such victims of the two world wars so uh, these international organizations they uh, you know, collected food and things for for children in in Europe and in other countries, but also for universal suffrage. There, so there was there was a kind of solidarity as well as as conflicts between uh, women uh, from different delegations. So it's um, it's a kind of a complex history, but the experience from San Francisco, the San Francisco conference showed that there could be aliences uh, among women beyond national borders and that there was a need for a commission with women where they could meet and talk about. So what were the issues that women needed to lift at the United Nations that women from all the members, members, states that were being represented at the UN shared at a, as a common experience of their rights not being respected, but also issues that they needed to raise for women who had not any representation at the UN, women living in non-self-governing territories. And this actually very much thanks to women from newly dependent states that you had an inclusion of stating in the Universal Declaration that human rights includes human rights for people living under non-self-governing territories. So that would include colonies, mandates, under trusteeship council, etc. So or, or occupied territories, ensuring that the political status of certain territories would not negate the idea that they they also had human rights and they could claim human rights even though that was not a reality a lived reality but uh, the women on, in these negotiations they knew that if you claim if you struggle for something even like against uh, colonial administrations at least there was a rhetoric weapon to use against the colonial oppression so this link is strong. The link between how the negotiation of the charter went and how the nascent discussions on a universal declaration of human rights, that link is very strong. And thank you for setting it out so clearly. Now let's 
Let's dive into it. Your book is so rich. You you, you describe uh, the commission of human rights and the contradistinction with the rights of man. You go into the commission on the status of women uh, with this uh, perspective of of, uh, sisterhood. And you mentioned this solidarity. We should not forget that that solidarity was a strong ingredient in what happened during those negotiations. So let's dive in for the benefit of our audience. An overview of... Your studies in this book, the findings that you found w- with respect to how this body of uh, human rights law emerged during those negotiations and the role, of course, of these women that were championing, that were fighting, struggling, and they knew, you used that so many times, these women knew what was at stake. They knew where to set the bar so that the, the, their sister around the world wouldn't lose uh, traction on their rights. So... Off you go with the overview of this wonderful book. Thank you so much. So I see this this work on on women's role in, in the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as a kind of counter-narrative to earlier research into the drafting of the Declaration. So earlier accounts that, that I had been reading um, that were dominant at the time when I was working with this research had focused solely on the role of U.S. Delegate Eleanor Roosevelt as the chair of the Human Rights Commission that was working with the Declaration. Uh, earlier historical accounts at that time had also looked into the drafting committee that made and made the first drafts of the Declaration and the male delegates there. You had male delegates from China and from Lebanon, for example. So you had other religious ideas connected to international human rights. However, the presence of women in in this process over two years had been uh, mostly overlooked. And one of the things that I wanted to highlight was even though in the Commission on Human Rights, you only had two women delegates. You had Eleanor Roosevelt, but besides uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, you had Hansa Mehta from India. And Hansa Mehta, she was the one who suggested that Eleanor Roosevelt would be elected chair in the Commission on Human Rights. She was also the first one to mention and react to the fact that the first draft said all men are born equal. She said that all men is not an inclusive wording. Her suggestion and the suggestion also by voiced by representatives from the Commission on the Statutes of Women to change this to all human beings was voted down at least once in the debates by other uh, delegates. But later it it shifted, the language shifted from all men to all human beings. And I think this was thanks to the Hansa Mehta and other uh, women representatives. Hansa Mehta was both the second uh, woman in the Commission on Human Rights, but she was also representative and part of the Commission on the Statutes of Women. So in the Commission on the Statutes of Women, she had great support from other women delegates from Latin America, from India, from China, from Turkey, Lebanon, and other countries, but also women delegates from European countries. In 
ensuring that you know the right to education for example would be right for both boys and and, and girls uh, and i think that her presence was really important in many regards so during the the colonial administration of 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 india the right to education for women had been really low so illiteracy was really high in india among women after the the independence this is something that they changed in a very strong way and i think that this is also experience of of other countries that finally gained independence from colonial rule was that under colonialism education uh, was not being afforded to everyone so people were held illiterate and were being exploited in unpaid labor and etc so that's part of a colonial administration to to keep people uneducated and 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 unfortunately, I think that this is also a problem that we have today that we talk about only primary education and not really ensuring higher education and, uh, and universities in, in all countries and, and local universities, national universities. It's, it's a way to, to rob people both of you know, knowledge and, and the right to their own history, et cetera, et cetera. Because if you influence people's education, you can influence what kind of knowledge is being spread in a society. But so, so Hansa Metha knew that girls' right to education was be really important for their right to take part in political, uh, in, in politics, and for the right to vote, for their for economic rights, and uh, also to counter like child marriages, for example, that uh, women need to earn education and and means to to earn their own living and not to be forced into to child marriages, etc. So for her, economic and social and cultural rights were really dependent on, on political and civil rights. So Hansa Meta, she wanted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights not just to be a mere declaration. She wanted it to become a binding convention that human rights were going to be become, you know, a legal reality, a social and political reality of people. She also wanted the International Court of, of Human Rights to, to become a reality and to hold member states accountable for human rights atrocities. I think, or I see in the, I saw in the meeting protocols when I, I looked at the debates that Male delegates from the UK, for example, who initially said that, well, the rights of man is something that we, you know, it's part of our history and this is something that we believe very strongly in. They uh, felt more and more threatened by the very strong rhetoric, by, for example, Hansa Mehta, when she, uh, she argued that we needed to, to make a reality of these rights. They, we needed to hold uh, member states accountable and then colonial powers understood that they would be held accountable and that they could not just hide behind this rhetoric of human rights. Unfortunately, after the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, when Eleanor Roosevelt and Hansa Mehta wanted to, to ensure that there was an international convention on human rights being adopted by, this, by the General Assembly, it was voted down 
So they had to, to divide it into two covenants. So that's why we now have a, a first generational rights, you know, political, civil, and a second generational rights of economic, social, and cultural rights. I think that's a real shame that the Cold War created such division because it the division of human rights into different parts does not really acknowledge the dependence of uh, different rights on others. And especially, I think, from, from a feminist perspective where women's rights in the private is connected to the rights in the public. If you do not have the right to decide over your future, if you do not have the economic means to um, to make your own choices in life, it's it's really difficult to talk about other types of rights as well. And and also the understanding that a lot of women had that we needed women in politics in order to change and question the discriminatory legislation in place in many countries that disregarded rights of women. So we had Hansa then in the Commission on Human Rights being supported by Minerva Bernardino, who was the chair of the Commission on the Statutes of Women, but also other uh, women delegates from, from China, Begum Hamid Ali, for example, she wanted um, the declaration also to mention that monogamy should be yeah, um, mentioned that men should not have the right to have uh, several wives, for example. This was not being included, of course, in the in the declaration. The Commission on the Statutes of Women, as they had, even though they had representatives in all meetings, so they could. Um, they could raise their concerns. They could ask questions to the delegates. Why had they, for example, in earlier drafts, taken away the mentioning of gender equality in the preamble? So you mentioned it in the, the UN Charter, in the preamble of the UN Charter, men and women are equal. Then taking away that in a draft of the preamble of the Universal Declaration. And... And also Hélène Lefachaud from France, who had uh, received the, the Croix de Guerre at the end of World War II for resistance against Nazi occupation. She's, uh, she ensured that sex was being included again in the non-discrimination list of the, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But so I think that the presence of the women representatives, even though they could not vote on certain changes in the in the articles, they could raise their concerns and they could ensure that their presence would be uncomfortable for the mostly male delegates of the Human Rights Commission who might consciously or unconsciously overlook things that had to do with, with women. The U.S. delegation was a was, for example, against the inclusion of Article 16 of rights in marriage and at its dissolution, which meant that they didn't want women's rights in the private to be included in the idea of, of human rights. They said that human rights should be only civil and political rights. But uh, as women delegates from 
from other countries had experienced that you know if if women do not have any rights in the private they will not have any rights in the in the political the article was nonetheless uh, kept in the declaration i i think this was very radical also at the time because it mentions the right to divorce and this was not a lived reality of women from many countries at the time so and then the the declaration went to the third committee of the general assembly and but then we have new women delegates from from Pakistan for example Sheikh Dikramullah who's part of drafting the the constitution of, of first constitution of Pakistan being part of the deliberations as well so so the deliberations in also in Geneva were really yeah, interesting at the end of the the process. This is actually something I wanted to ask you. Uh, see whether it comes up uh, in a certain light in your in your in your research. So it's it's really a question f- f- for you. When I found out preparing for this episode, I found out the uh, the fact that um, I think three of the initial drafts, three initial drafts of the declaration were negotiated in Geneva back in December forty seven. And, and and by the way, this is a declaration that could have taken an immense time to negotiate, but actually it went through very quickly. It was the negotiating process lasted um, two years. And so can you tell us more about what happened in Geneva and how significant were those negotiations to um, you know, adopting the, the, the declaration as we know it today? So, so the negotiations uh, were in Palais des Nations in Geneva, and this is known as the heart of the United Nations human rights work. Um, and I just wanted to mention that uh, in French, it's droit de l'homme, and the Commission on the Statutes of Women questioned this wording in, in French, and they suggested droit de l'homme FM, uh, but the French uh, delegates felt that that would be an unnecessary repetition in wording and that women you know them were included in lom so uh, so they were going to um, consider the report from the subcommission on the prevention of discrimination and protection of minorities in geneva both the human rights commission and the commission on the statutes of women and this would affect the non-discrimination list of article 2 in the declaration which is really important uh, and here I come back to Hélène Lefarchot because there was an omission of sex discrimination in the draft that was being discussed. And she said that, oh, this must have been an oversight on Mr. Bor- Borisov on his part. He was the male delegate from Soviet Union. And, and when she did say this, uh, the chair of, of the discussions, Charles Malik from Lebanon, thanked Lefarchot. And he also expressed his satisfaction that there was a presence of members from the Commission on the Statutes of Women in these debates. But what happened here, and this is the only time actually in the meeting protocols that that I saw this, it says that Mr. Roy from Haiti, he had to raise the point of order in view of the demurs that were voiced by some members when they said that sex would be included in the non-discrimination list. So non-discrimination against women seemed like that was not like an evident thing to discuss. Possibly uh, several delegates felt like this was 
something that should not really be included in declarations. So they had to have a point of order in the in the room due to this. Another thing that was being raised in Geneva, which I, I thought was interesting, was Mr. Duke from the UK. In Article 1, he wanted a footnote stating that men uh, in the declaration refers to all human beings. So, the, because the representatives from the Commission, the Statutes of Women, said that men was not really including women. But he said, well, maybe we can have a, a footnote <laughs> in the declaration stating that. But uh, so all men was still being used in the Geneva draft, but this was being, again, taken up uh, later and changed. How did that happen? I remember reading your book that there is this famous uh, quote from one of the women delegates saying, men does not mean women. So how did happen this transition? How was this point overcome during the negotiations? So this was being taken up again by by Hansa Mehta later on in the discussions in the human in the Commission on Human Rights, saying that if we use the wording men, it will not mean women in India. And and the wording was actually being changed. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt said that she was responding to Hansa Mehta at that point, saying that, well, um, this is a language issue and all men is an inclusive language, etc. In that sense, I think she was a little bit more blinded to the the male biased language of, of the declaration. Um, the Commission on the Statutes of Women drew Hansa Mehta ensured that uh, all men was being changed to all human beings. But they also wanted sisterhood to be mentioned in addition to brotherhood. Uh, they wanted he, uh, not only his and him to be the language of the declaration, but also her and hers. This was not changed uh, because other delegates felt like that would be a, a strange uh, way of, of, of writing. Today, I think we would have wanted both his, hers, theirs in the declaration to have it even more inclusive. Yeah, of course, today the language has evolved. At that time, there was also something that still exists today in very technical text. Is this mirror translations, for example, the, 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 the words in English that wouldn't translate the same way in French. And I think I read in your book that this was also an issue taken up by, um, that took time during the negotiations, isn't it? Yes, yes. They wanted... As I mentioned, uh, not just Watelom, but Watelom FM. That, that, that is a good example. And still today, actually, the name of the Human Rights Council in, in French and the name of the overall name used in the UN is Droit de l'Homme. With an, an evolution that is there uh, that uses more Droit Humain. So mm -hmm. that, that uh, seems more um, a, a, a translation of, of human rights. So in English, some things are easier than in French, and I imagine also vice versa. But this is also a good segue in, in, in a, in a, in a next and final part of our conversation today. I wanted to tap into your knowledge of, in terms of gender historical uh, analysis of human rights, and I, I, I really wonder 
when you look at uh, when you look at this dimension, what emerges when we look at the history of human rights from a gender historical mm. point of view? We saw the role of these women. We saw through your 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 analysis that what they knew, what they what they held for true, actually played a role and motivated them in, in their struggle because it was a struggle uh, in diplomatic terms but also in political terms, as you highlighted minutes ago. So when we look, for example, at the contradistinction between uh, the universality of human rights as a concept and the specificity of uh, women's rights, how, mm. how was that perceived? What is the state of play today? How do we make sense of that contract distinction. Now, through a, a feminist reading of this historical process, one thing that becomes really clear is that as a reader, uh, you need to be aware that wordings that are being used at the time were not inclusive. That's why you need explicit mentioning of women or children or people living under colonial rule. For example, who was included in the notion of the worker with economic rights and the right to equal pay? Who was being included in the notion of a citizen with voting rights? people needed to be explicitly mentioned in order to be included in such a notion. So if you look at reports and meeting protocols also from the ILO, the International Labour Organization, you will see that their understanding was also that, you know, you had a male worker and a male worker with rights, or even though not stating male, it was evident that the worker is is a male breadwinner family. What does a man need to earn in order to pay for his family? Coming back then to how I started uh, talking about my interest in this history. So earlier historical accounts that have just looked at the notion of human rights and then dating that back to the French Revolution or the American Declaration of Independence I think that that shows a misguided understanding of what human rights is in the terms as it's used in UN conventions and UN declarations, because at the founding of the United Nations, that was the the time when you had a more inclusive understanding of human rights, including women, including people living on the colonial rule. If you look at the French Revolution, French women risk their lives when they try to argue that women should be included as citizens. They could be seen as threats to the, the state and be killed for that, but they did not have voting rights. So it was not an inclusive concept. The idea of of rights also in earlier U.S. declarations were also excluding people, um, women, people who did not own property, and the civil rights movement, which came after the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, really shows that civil rights and political rights as they were being debated at the UN, were not really inclusive. And and there are really fascinating accounts of how 
women organizations in the U.S., black women used the wording of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights after its adoption to argue for their civil and, and political rights. And I think that it's important also when we talk about, you know, the, the suffrage movement was a very lively debate in many countries. And we cannot just look at the date in history when property-owning men received the right to vote or when all men received the right to vote or when a few women received the right to vote. I think that it's important to include, so when did indigenous women receive the right to vote in different countries? And then you will have a totally different uh, timeline for when suffrage has become a reality in, in many countries. So I think that that's one of the the gains with taking a feminist analysis is being mindful of who's being included and who is still being excluded. Well, this is fascinating and actually offers really a reading into the development of human rights. And this this concept of what's inclusive also that you explained uh, to, to us, it's really useful in understanding beyond the wording, beyond the use of words in in, in, in text in, on, on pages of declarations, it really, it really opens up uh, uh, a, lot of, a lot of interesting spaces there. So thank you, thank you for that. I wanted to go back to some of these women figures that I met during the book. Reading your book, there is a, there is a series of fascinating, historical, uh, impressive women, I would say. I wanted to, as we, we go towards the, the conclusion of the episode, um, I wanted to hear from you. You have lived during your research, uh, you know, sitting next to these women, reading these primary sources that are basically the, 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 the notes uh, of, of, of these meetings and these negotiations. Who are those who impressed you the most? Well, several women and, and of different uh, reasons. So, uh, of course, Hansa Mehta impressed me a lot since um, she was working alongside Mahatma Gandhi in the independence movement. She was jailed twice for her resistance. She um, she ensured that you know thousands of, of Indian women uh, demonstrated, and and she also married out of love uh, against case against her family. <laughs> so she was a, a very inspiring revolutionary woman. And in the photos, she sits in her uh, sari and, and sandals at the UN meetings. She had a lot of respect from the other women delegates uh, due to her experiences and how she's been part of also the work with the, the constitution of, of India. I mean, she's yeah, she's very, uh, very inspiring. And then Minerva Benadino from the Dominican Republic and the, her work in the Commission on the Status of Women, I think is fascinating because um, she was orphaned early on. She had to make her own living. She moved to the U.S. She was in one sense representing... Um, dictatorship um, and non-democratic regime but she was really speaking with her own voice and she was speaking for you know democracy and and um, I think she was part of those Latin American women at the time who felt that through an international organization you could 
place pre- pressure on national governments to ensure that women's rights were being respected. I think uh, she's really fascinating because she uh, she was a real international figure in many senses because she did not really abide, I think, to to uh, her own to to just representing her own country. She can like find her own way in in U- UN negotiations. And then Shaikh Mullah from Pakistan in the third committee, she had actually been. Uh, moved from the commission that was dealing with the convention against genocide because her male colleagues felt that she got and received too much kudos for her beautiful, um, passionate speeches against genocide in that commission. So she was moved to this, uh, to the third committee. Uh, I think that Several male delegates did not think that the Declaration of Human Rights would be so important as it has shown us to, you know, it has customary law status today. And it's it's a very important document of the United Nations. And then another figure that I've been very inspired by is Lakshmi Minon from India. And the reason why I'm, I'm so inspired by her is that, well, for one, an interesting fact is that she didn't want to be part of any photos or uh, be seen so much like publicly. So there are very few photos of her in the in the UN archives and the media archives. But the speeches that she held were so strong. She was one of the delegates who uh, always ensured to mention people living under non-self-governing territories, in non-self-governing territories, in, under colonial rule. She was very critical of uh, colonial administration and hypocrisy of uh, Western uh, delegates who spoke about human rights but did not really ensure that this became a reality and realization in the territories that uh, they oppressed. I think that she's very inspiring because she was so strong in her speeches but she was not really seen so much. And I think as an academic and someone who wants to just sit in archives, but just to, you know, work with documents and and, and I'm, I'm really fascinating with, with just knowledge and what could be found and, and not wanting to be seen so much. I think that she as a figure was, it could really relate to that of being very passionate about something that you believe in very strongly, but then maybe not wanting to be seen so much. <laughs> I see that. I, I, I understand that. As we draw this to a conclusion, Rebecca, in, in your book, there isn't really a chapter called Conclusions, but there is an epilogue that I like very much on on on, on female representation in, in, the, in the UN. So what are your final thoughts linked to this analysis that you have done in your book, but also more generally on on this point of women representation in what is the modern, you know, multilateral system today. So when I, I wrote the book, we in Sweden, even though we've been like champion women's rights, at that time we hadn't had a single um, female head of state. And in a lot of 
other countries, Latin American and African countries, you've had very strong uh, head of states, female head of states, and I, I think that's very inspiring. When it comes to the United Nations, I think that one of the challenges is that we have, for example, we have the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, but we do not really have enough um, children being heard or being part of negotiations about uh, their own rights and and also the, um, the importance of having uh, minorities in all countries being represented at the UN. I don't want to call women a minority because women constitute half of the population of the world, but still, uh, in if we see see this as like a possible democratic idea, you know, that you should have representation, then uh, we're kind of failed in, in many regards, because that's not how it looks like at UN. And it's also, I think it's also disheartening to see how the Commission on the Statutes of Women still need to relate to members with consultative status that do not have any female representatives and who question the very core and basic human rights of women, like the right to vote or right to contraceptives, to divorce, to against child marriages, etc., etc., that we, that people need to continue arguing for very basic human rights against interests that are not personally affected maybe by the rights that they limit but have a lot of influence in in deciding um, on other people's rights and I mean this is the situation in, in all countries that heterosexuals take the rights to decide rights for other people that do not really influence themselves and yeah and, and we still have a neocolonial uh, structure where uh, Western countries continue to exploit and set, you know, standards when it comes to not paying taxes in countries where they exploit both labor and resources, etc. So it's it's a continuous democracy is a continuous um, process, and I think that the United Nations is a very interesting organization because it it's, it comprises of member states with different political systems. But there is an international organization where people actually do meet and where there are negotiations and discussions and diplomatic discussions on these issues. And I think that that, is, that generates hope because as long as people meet over differences and discuss things and, and you can raise voices of dissent, uh, there's a hope for change. Uh, so I think that the United Nations, uh, there's a lot of, a critique against the organization, of course, but I think it's a very inspiring uh, endeavor. Well, I could not agree more sitting here in this Palais des Nations, uh, looking at you through the screen, but I'm sitting here in Geneva, the cradle of, of many parts of multilateralism and the house, really the house of human rights. I couldn't agree more with you. Well, Rebecca Adami, Thank you for taking time to be on the podcast with us. Congratulations for this enlightening book, and we wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Francisco, for inviting me.